Josh and I are here. Um, Hello. And our guest this week is our good friend, Luke. Luke, what do you actually do? So, hey, Nick and uh, Josh. Uh, so I am a credit analyst for Wintrust. Um, and so what I do is I work with small and medium-sized loans for businesses. So whether you're like a mom-and-pop shop to a business that could have 500 employees uh, and you guys need a loan and you come to our bank, I'm kind of the guy on the back end that does all the underwriting make sure the numbers check out that we're going to be secure if we're going to be giving you a loan um, and kind of all the due diligence that that goes in on the backside. So are you the guy that's been writing all the PPP loans? So PPP, my nemesis and friend. Uh, yeah. So PPP, I guess from April through, I would say about mid-June was my life. Uh, I was working seven days a week uh, for the most part. Even on Easter, I was working, taking conference calls. Um, from start to finish, from taking an application um, to doing some of the due diligence that we do, um, to submitting it to um, through like the SBA system, and then having our automated system process those loans and get them out to people. Um, so that's pretty much been my life during those months. Starting at the beginning of July slash end of June, uh, we're starting the forgiveness portion. So I'm on the team that's going to be processing all the government forgiveness requests that we have to meet, you know, the requirements, the 60% payroll spend. And then um, we send it to the SBA for final review before they go ahead and wire us the funds to pay off that loan. So what is the government, the government what? The government paybacks? Can you explain that a little bit more? So, yeah. So with the PPP loan, uh, if you're a business, basically you got to take two and a half times your monthly payroll amount. So kind of keeping some easy numbers. Let's say your monthly payroll is $10,000 and you have two employees. So they each make $5,000 a month. So essentially you'd get a loan for 25 grand because that's two and a half times 10 grand um, that was given to you. And then originally you needed to spend 75% of it on payroll expenses, but with the Flexibility Act that they passed in mid to late June, they offered uh, a 24-week period to pay that off, or excuse me, pay the payroll expenses, um, and it only had to be 60%. That other 40% could be uh, utilities, such as like your AT&T bill, your water bill, your garbage bill, as well as mortgage interest um, or rent slash lease payments. So even with PPP, like that's still when the government, you know, made that more accessible, it's still something that needs to be paid back like fairly quickly. Six months is not super short. Well, so maybe payback isn't the term I should use. So you pay your employees. So of that, going back to my example, where you got a $25,000 loan, um, you have two kind of what they call covered periods. So it's eight or 24 weeks. So if you opt for the eight-week period uh, payback, you would have to use that entire loan proceeds or at least 60% of them to pay employees uh, that was used to calculate the loan amount. And then if you make at least the 60%, that other 40% can pay your your rent or your utilities or that mortgage interest. Um, And then what you do is after you submit your application for forgiveness, 
uh, what will happen is the like uh, our financial institution will review it or whoever the finance that issued the loan submit it to the SBA. Once the SBA gives a green light, the SBA actually pays us that twenty five thousand dollars as the uh, the bank to then make that loan disappear. So the borrower never has to pay that loan, assuming they meet the criteria, which is more than kind of just what I said. But it's it's relatively straightforward. Okay, and this is a unique COVID situation. Yeah, so this is specifically to help um, many companies for, through COVID. So there's a bunch of attestations that you have to fill out on the application that state that this is financing is needed uh, based on the financial uncertainty around COVID and the economy. So if you're owned by like a private equity firm and you have other sources uh, to get funds to pay your employees, this program wasn't really for you. It, it's for the mom and pop or the, even the medium-sized business that like day-to-day, they make money, they're doing well, but COVID made their business kind of income disappear. So this is to come in, pay your employees, keep them on payroll, uh, which is a twofold thing. One, keeps money flowing to the people to help keep your economy moving. And then two, keeps people off unemployment, uh, which is always a good thing. Okay. So can people still, even now, apply for PPP loans if they're affected by... COVID at this point? Yes and no. Um, So I'll say this. So yes, uh, the program was extended, I believe, either to August 1st or through August. Um, I believe that was signed last week, the beginning of July. Um, But some banks like us, we are right now not sure if we're going to be reopening applications. Uh, As previously, we kind of had, you know, June 26th was the last day we were going to take them, but it's possible we could restart accepting it. But there are financial institutions out there that are still processing these loans. Okay. So I guess this kind of ties in a little bit to an earlier question we were chatting about uh, before the call involving like how loans actually, not just how loans, but like how businesses actually become established around the idea of, you know, C-Corps, S-Corps, LLCs, like do all of those qualify for this kind of loan and what's kind of... Yeah. So pretty much any business, even if you're a sole proprietor or, um, you know, an independent contractor. So an independent contractor would be like a, uh, let's say a hairdresser who doesn't work for the actual salon, but gets paid in a form of 1099. Um, they were all eligible um, based off their expenses and net income to go ahead and calculate their loan, um, which, and then kind of speaking more to the different, you know, LLCs. I don't know. I kind of just lost where I was going with that. Oh, you're fine. I actually, <laughs> what I was talking about is like, we're, so we're swirling around, we're looking at all these things. We're like, okay, we got to get like shares given out to our people. We got to try to grow this business. This is going really well right now. But then like me as someone who's founding something, I'm looking at all these things, C-Corp, S-Corp, LLC, business bank accounts, and really you being like an expert in this area. I was wondering if you- I, I wouldn't call it. myself an expert. I, I'd like to say I know enough to be dangerous. Um, That's That fair. would be kind of the phrase that well, I would I mean, use. Like everyone overqualifies what, qualifies what an expert is. So, like, is an expert like someone who studies like economics at like Yale or so, is like- <laughs> And either way, you definitely have more knowledge on the topic than we do, so- Based on, based on what you understand, uh, and yeah, as Josh said, and, and you know, more than the vast majority of people when it comes to this kind of thing. Yeah. So, so. I mean, it, it all depends on kind of a couple things. One, when it comes to forming a, a business entity, there's, there's two big things that I think come up with people's brain. One is what are the tax implications? And two, what's the legal implications? So 
with a sole proprietor, which is usually what a lot of people do if they're just starting a business out because they don't want to have to file things with the state. You know, LLC fee could be $250, could be more than that, or same with an S-corp. So you form a sole prop. Uh, the big downside to a sole prop is, well, it's going to be all your personal liability. So either A, if you borrow money with the sole proprietor, you're going to be liable to pay that back. Or B, if your company... God hopes this doesn't happen, but someone gets hurt because of your product, you personally could be sued. And if like you own a house, that could be then used as collateral to pay off that if you don't have good enough insurance. Um, like a sole proprietorship is, sounds like it's like pretty much entirely you the business. So why yes, would I you ever, are the business. Why would I ever do that instead of an LLC? Um, if you're just like a great example is if you're just selling things on eBay here, there, here and there and you're making enough that you should be claiming that money as income and you have expenses that can be go along with it. Um, it it's, it's really for the people just starting out. Or let's say you're John and you just started a landscape business and you're mowing like your whole neighborhood's lawn. Uh, it's, it's, it's to the point where you, you need to count it as business income and you have expenses that you can kind of deduct. But it's not enough where you're paying $500 a year or whatever the fee costs are. To form an LLC or an S corp or so something. Sole like proprietorship. That. Can I have a business bank account? Absolutely, yes. Um, and you would just put it in your name. So if you were Josh and Nick, like it would be Josh first as sole proprietor. But in the case of you guys, where there's two of you, a sole proprietorship doesn't really make sense because only one of you, like you could theoretically split it evenly and report it as two different things. I think I don't quote me on that, but it just isn't wise. So where an LLC and S-Corp, or in that case, a C-Corp come in is they separate that legal liability into different entity. So if you guys have summarized it, LLC is a legal entity that you guys each own 50%. Well, the way that's going to work is anything that the business does, whether that's income, expenses, it's all going to go through that LLC. And at the end of the day with an LLC, whatever your net income is, that gets split among the owners of the LLC and comes as just income into your tax return. So it's the LLC itself doesn't pay taxes. It's it's considered a pass through. So all that funding money that comes through it and goes out then gets reported on your personal tax return. So if you're in a lower like tax bracket, that's usually pretty good. An S corp, which is similar to an LLC in the aspect of all, all of the income that gets paid from the S corp goes to you guys personally and you guys pay the liability. However, you still kind of separate the money. So if your company has $100,000 in its cash account as an S-corp and it makes $50,000 in a year, then like you technically would have 50, 150 grand, and you guys would have to pay taxes on that $150,000. But you can then distribute that funding out to each of you. So you can pay yourself a salary and that will reduce the net income and then you pay personal taxes and then the distribution. So it's it's kind of a more complicated LLC. taxed twice then? Once on the business side, once on the personal side? No, it's still also just taxed on the personal side. Okay. It's just you can do it both in a form of a salary and as pass-through income. I see. So here's Whereas a... Yes. Okay, you, fin you finish your thing and I'll ask a question after. Yeah. So I'll throw the last most, more common entity and that's C-Corp. And that's where taxes are paid at a corporate level. So whatever your in net income is on the business, say it's a hundred grand, you get hit with corporate tax. That leaves you with the net profit in the company. And then you do distributions of that company out to the people, the owners. And I believe those are taxable. Don't quote me on it. So 
Um, I believe C-Corps do get double taxed, uh, but generally C-Corps are going to be your publicly traded entities like a Microsoft or a Facebook, something like that, where they have hundreds of shareholders. Those aren't really going to be S-Corps or LLCs. Yeah, so do companies typically go from like in that order in terms of their development where they go from initially like sole proprietorships, develop into LLCs, then S-Corps and C-Corps, or is it more like... It, it depends. Uh, honestly, it depends. I don't think a company, and, and I, I don't know this for sure, would ever go from LLC to S-Corp to C-Corp. I could definitely see them going from LLC to C-Corp or from S-Corp to C-Corp, but I would say generally they wouldn't go through each. They're, they're, they're not necessarily like one stage one, one stage two, one stage three. Um, it's they all have their options. Yeah. So an LLC, like a lot of companies will do like real estate loves LLCs. So everyone like a property would be its own LLC. So if you own a huge building in downtown Chicago, you're going to name that 504 West Monroe Street um, LLC. And that would just be that one building. And you would be able to go through all of your real estate expenses and then whatever's left over that comes as income to the real estate investors. And sometimes they'll have it be a parent company, which would be an S corp or a C corp or an LLC that that would own those LLCs independently. So that way, let's say you have that building and another building and one of them, like the elevator breaks and someone gets hurt and they sue for a million dollars. I mean, generally you'd have insurance for that, but they couldn't go after your other building or let's use it in the form of a loan. You default on your loan the the comp uh, the bank can't go over that go after that second building unless they had a guarantee. Okay, so pretend I had a friend named Yash and he's starting a uh, tech startup and uh, currently has an LLC and is looking and has more people coming onto his company and is looking to divvy up shares and of options in such a way to make everyone else feel like they're involved and they're going to get something out of it. What would Yash do? I would probably stick with the LLC until you become big enough where you think that's going to be an issue. Okay. I mean, I've seen LLCs with 10, 15 members to them with them owning 0.01%, 0.35%. You can't do options in an LLC, but you can give like small percentages of the company to different... What do you mean by options? I mean, I think you would be able to. Uh, as in like... If the company goes public, you get this amount of stock. So you yeah you could absolutely like if if you go like if you go public at that point you would probably convert your company to a C corp and whatever percentage they would own of the LLC would probably translate to the C corp percentage. However, unless you did some sort of like cash out where people are going or diluted shares, there there's different things that could change. But generally, if you own five percent of a company and it's one entity type and you switch to the other to do an IPO, you're still going to own that much unless they issue new shares in order to facilitate the IPO, which then that dilutes your ownership. Got it. So one thing you did mention that kind of struck my interest, I know we didn't plan on chatting about this, but you mentioned uh, in, involving like assigning LLCs to businesses. I'm just curious from an investing standpoint. So then would you want each piece of property you own to be under a different LLC to reduce uh, liability across them? Yeah, a lot of people do it that way. I, I don't necessarily think you have to, but absolutely, it's something I see pretty commonly. Um, there's also Illinois allows series LLCs, which is an even more complex. So you can have like, you know, Nick's Company LLC, and then you could have Nick's Company LLC series, 
you know, 1355 South Monroe Street as like w- one building. And then it all, it's like a parent LLC. Um, I don't know too much into detail of the legalities of how series works, but that's something I've seen with some properties um, or just having different LLCs, especially now that Illinois brought those fees down. So I have a question. Yes. Actually, this again, not on the list, but this is something that you kind of prompted is like, so I registered my LLC in Illinois. We live in Illinois. It made sense to me to do it here. Um, but obviously a majority of LLCs are registered in probably Maryland or Delaware. Delaware. Um, so, okay. You want to know why do people yes. do that versus Illinois? Uh, so two things, one, um, it comes down to fees. So Delaware fees for the filer are generally lower, but for the banks is actually more expensive. So one of the things that we do when we're underwriting loans is we like to pull good standings on companies um, and verify them through the Secretary of State website. So if I wanted to look up your guys' LLC, I can go to the Illinois Secretary of State website and just pull up what is your guys's LLC. Is it active? Have they filed their annual report? And it would tell me yes or no. Um, if I want to do that for Delaware, it's not something you can do online. You, it's kind of convoluted. You have to go in person. It's like an offshore and, payment account, but it's in the US. Kind of, but I'm the bank joking, has to pay. Yeah. It, it's more that the bank has to pay $50, something of that nature to actually pull that good standing. So uh, it, it actually pushes the cost instead of on the business to the lending institutions, as well as there's other reasons that I, I personally don't know um, but you just act as a Delaware Corp that has, you know, is acting as a foreign LLC in Illinois. Um, well, I want to be a, a lot sneaky, of sneaky guy. I make it in Delaware. <laughs> you could, and and, in, and when it comes to uh, this, is kind of going to go on how business loans yeah. work. But uh, there's something called the Universal Commercial Code or UCC. Um, so if a bank, if I loan you guys money, I need to file a UCC on your business. Um, and so if you're you know, filed in Illinois is where your LLC is filed. I have to file that UCC in Illinois. And so what that'll do is if another lender comes in and wants to lend you money, they'll run a search and they'll see that we have a first priority lien on your business. So generally they're not going to lend you money in a second position. Um, and, and what that end, ends up meaning is if there's two filings on a business in the UCC and that business goes bankrupt and needs to pay the lenders back, they have to pay in full that first priority lien before the second lender can be paid back anything. Now there's different instances where if like, let's say it's a, a car loan that the business has. So that loan is specifically tied to an asset that would go to that lender. But if you had multiple lines of credit, one of those, the, the first position would get paid off first and then whatever assets could be liquidated would go to that second company. So you have less security. So way to, so that a company can't just go to like five lenders, get a bunch of money and then misuse it. And then all of a sudden all these lenders are like WTF. I thought I was the only one you would owe money to. Mm-hmm. So they make sure everyone actually gets paid out. Yeah. Or, and it's just another way to manage risk. There are lenders that'll take that second position, but they have their own calculations, different things that they look at to see if that's something they'll do, or maybe they charge a higher interest rate uh, in order to make that risk worth it. So I guess like to take a back step on the actual loans portion of it, mm-hmm. um, let's talk about like the actual business bank accounts and then kind of go into the loans from there. Cause like step-by-step step, pretend I have, so I've created an LLC I now want to go to a bank, use my LLC, 
to start uh, accounting for all my business expenses. Um, do I just I go in, I sit down, they tell me what's up, and uh, I just sign there, right? I'm kidding, but like, what are these steps involved in this? And what, what would you say are like? So best? there's there's one step in between there that I think you kind of glossed over. So after you file your LLC or your S corp, there's one other thing that you need to do, and that's create an operating agreement for in the case of an LLC, or have corporate bylaws if you're an S or C corp. Uh, and so what that does, that will outline who's, who are the owners of the company, how many shares do they own, and the different rights of the, the members. Or maybe you guys have a third party that you want to be as a... Maybe they don't own part of the company, but you want to authorize them to be able to sign documents that can legally it's bind the, the bank company. account or something. Yeah. So that would all have to be spelled out in an operating agreement, corporate bylaws, whatever applies to you. I'll use operating agreement because that's the most common that exactly. I see. And we did ours over LegalZoom, actually, not like to shout out LegalZoom or something, but it was fairly easy. Yeah. Um, and, and that's an easy way to do it. Personally, I would eventually, at some point, if you get big enough, yeah, I would lawyer. look at getting a lawyer to draft one. There's different nuances that they can work with. Um, but yeah, so once you have that, that will be able to tell us. So if you go to a bank and you're like, I would like to open a business checking account, they're going to ask for your articles of incorporation generally, and they'll ask for that operating agreement because one, and a, and a letter from the IRS giving you your tax ID. Uh, one, they want to make sure that the LLC is is valid. Two, they want to make sure that you know some random person isn't just saying that he can sign on behalf of a certain LLC. Uh, I mean, there's cases of fraud where people will fraudulently create the documents, but that's a whole different case, um, and that's stuff that we have to look out for. Um, but if it's a legitimate document, you know, it says Nick is a 50% owner and he's a signer. Josh, he's a 50% owner. He's a signer. And then you have Jeff, just the name I made up and he is a 0% owner, but he's authorized to sign corporate documents. So <clears throat> Jeff goes in, he, even though he doesn't own part of the company, he has the documents that say he can create a deposit account. He'll create it depo- make the initial deposit. And there you go. You got yourself a business checking account. Now for on those checking accounts, like, obviously different banks have different values on different things. Like what, I mean, one of the things probably even negative taste to it is um, a good tip you gave me a while ago is like never do savings with Chase. And you told me this years ago and then I followed through and I'm like, okay, I looked at Chase's savings and I'm like, Oh my God, it's low. It was like almost disgustingly low. Yeah, um, so I'll kind of elaborate on that. So yeah. what, a big what, bank like Chase or, or bank of America, the reason why I generally as a consumer say not to, to put savings account in them is because you're not getting a good return. Chase or Bank of America, they have so much so capital many- available to them that the cost that they need to pay out to consumers is so low that like they there's no they don't need to pay more to get money. People are already just giving it to them. And so because the idea is if you have a higher interest rate, more money will get stored there. If you have a lower interest rate, you probably have other ways that you're getting your funds. Um, and, and there's honestly so many different markets for banks to hold to achieve receiving deposits. But relating that back to bi- actual business accounts, like is there much like how I was not supposed to go to Chase to get my savings account opened as a personal person? For business accounts, is there a pro and con versus what bank I sign with? Or yeah, there absolutely. There, there actually is, and and I guess it, it depends. I mean, yeah, you're going to give up if you use a traditional bank. You're going to give up probably a little bit of interest rate that you'll earn on your your business savings account, but it's not going to be much more compared to another, uh, let's say, online bank. 
And really that boils down to a lot of banks are relationship based. So if you're not holding their saving, your savings amount accounts over and you're not holding your checking account with the bank, the bank might be less inclined to give you a loan um, for two reasons. One, they, they'll, they'll look at the profitability of the customer and deposits allow them to earn money because then they can loan that out. So if you're not really keeping your deposits there, they're not going to give you really a low rate. Like a great example is if you have three million dollars in deposits and disclaimer, I'm I'm making up the situation and the rates that I'm kind of giving. Yeah. But if you have three million dollars in deposit and you ask for a two hundred fifty thousand dollar line of credit, chances are that bank is probably going to give you a fairly good rate, especially since um, I, and this term might be incorrect, but I, th- I I don't know what the exact term is, but in the case of a default on that line of credit, a bank can go into your deposit account and just pull that money to pay off the loan. So there's less risk when they're holding the deposits. So that's one of the reasons they'll give you the lower rate. And two is they have enough money to cover the the money they're lending to you. So if they're paying you a low rate on it, let like their administrative cost is all that goes into pricing that loan. Whereas if you're holding the $3 million to Chase and you're going to Bank of America for your loan, Bank of America might see you have that money, but they'll price you higher because you're not keeping that relationship with, with that. So they look at a, a total relationship um, and and not all banks are the same, but that's that's kind of my understanding. So you might give up some interest rate on you know your deposits, but you might get it back. And the the length of a commitment a bank will give you, the interest rate a bank will give you, as well as the amount a bank will give you. Now I have a follow up question on this. This has to do, I guess. So going over the loans themselves, when if you are a business, would you start with a smaller loan, see if you can handle it, so you have less liability see if you can create profit, then move forward to larger and larger and larger loans and take them out sub- subsequent or sequentially? Or I guess, how would you handle out, handle scaling loans or suggesting it to... Um, it, it really depends on your need. And uh, there's so many factors that go into a business loan. It, I mean, as a business, you could go to a bank and be like, I would like a $50,000 line of credit. And a bank will look at your financials and go well, you can't afford this payment based on your business's tax returns or your business's financial statements. And so they'll go, no, or they'll tell you, no, you know, you don't have anything that would be collateral. We don't feel comfortable with a $50,000 line. So you, you can ask a bank for whatever, but they're, and they'll look at that request and, and they'll f- try to figure out a way to work. But generally they're not going to either a over leverage themselves, give you too much money that you can't pay it back or B, that you don't have anything in the case that, like, even if you can pay it back, but if you don't have any collateral, they might not also make that decision. So when it comes to, like, making a loan, this is going to go into, I guess, just simple credit. There, there's what's called the five C's of credit. So there's capital, collateral, character, conditions, and capacity. Um, and each of those five C's, I like to think of it as a scale. So if you if a if you're making a loan, a bank's going to look at it and they're going to see how those weight. You might not have the capacity to pay a loan. You might be a break even, so your debt service coverage ratio is like one to one. So it's like they 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 can kind of pay it, but you have a ton of cash on your balance sheet. Well, they might be able to make it because in the case that you default, you've got the capital to pay it off. And so kind of I'll go through each of the five. So capacity is the ability to to pay it back, like. Is your net income 
um, or your EBITDA enough to cover the debt, the annual debt service on that loan. Um, if it is, you got a good capacity. Capital is just how much cash or how much liquid assets does that that uh, company have in order to pay that loan in case it goes bad. Collateral is if that loan goes bad, what secures it? So is there a house? Is there inventory? Is there accounts receivable? Uh, different things like that. So there's something tangible or I guess in the case of in- accounts receivable, it's kind of intangible that the bank could collect on in the case that you default. Character, I like to look at it as your credit history. So A, is the owner of the company, has he had a history of paying the loan back? Or B, maybe you've been a customer of the bank. Your business has been a customer of the bank for 10 years and you've never missed a payment. Well, the bank has a pretty good history of your character that you're going to pay them back. So they might go ahead and on those with a new customer, they might say no, but because you've shown history to repay, they'll go ahead and give you that that loan. I wouldn't call it loyalty. I would call it just your credit history. You have a history of of showing them good behavior. You're not a bad actor. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last C is conditions. And conditions would be, could be so many different things, but I guess a, a simple answer would be something like COVID. So every time I'm looking at a loan, COVID something we talk about. How has this impacted the business? What is the business doing to kind of mitigate it? And this is where I like to call it the storytelling and how, like looking at how the business can really explain how they'll handle different conditions. Like, is it maybe a tornado or what if all of your customers disappeared today? What could you do? Or your biggest customer decides to switch suppliers. It's all of those different things. So it's looking at the uh, the bigger picture items, things that are generally outside the business's control. So I guess the last question I have on this topic is from your perspective, do you have any overarching uh, tips in terms of getting uh, either the quantity needed or just the uh, most bang for your buck when it comes to getting a business loan? So, I, I mean, honestly, I would choose one institution that you think is going to be a good partner for your business, and I would start building a relationship with them. Whether that's your business savings account, business deposits, having your personal accounts there are great. Um, it, you, essentially, you want to show you're a profitable customer to the bank and one that isn't going to argue with them. So, and, and what I mean by argue is like you're a good customer. You're not someone that's going to, you know, fight them every single time you're dealing with a crest. Or let's say they have a requirement that you need to provide an annual tax return, that you're, you're timely with those things. Because then you're making a, a, a relationship with the bank and they're going to be willing to kind of work with you. Um, if you're kind of that jerk that says, you know, screw you, well, the bank doesn't really want that relationship. So they're not going to go above and beyond for you. Um, to kind of you know help you out and, and and honestly it's shop around see what different banks will offer I mean sometimes it's about the lowest rate but sometimes it's about building that relationship I mean building a relationship is generally how you get you know those those cases where you have to be creative maybe you need a unique financing um, and that's where a transactional bank so like your banks that are trying to really just get the lowest number. A lot of the times, those are either a yes or no, and that's it. Whereas a bank you've built a relationship, there's some wiggle room. That that lender will go at bat against the credit team to try to win that deal, assuming they're comfortable with it. 
So um, a lot of times when I hear like, oh, the relationship with my bank, I love the relationship with my bank. I hear them about credit unions, not necessarily large banks. <laughs> is there any credit unions? I know, I know, I know. I'm asking you as devil's advocate, trust me. Um, but so why wouldn't I start a business bank at a credit union instead of a actual bank? I mean, you could. I mean, I, I guess I mean, one of the things you I learned, I, I laugh because credit unions in some cases have, I would, I would consider an unfair advantage. Uh, credit unions don't pay taxes, so they're able to offer lower rates. I mean, they're owned by their members. All the profit made by the bank after putting away reserves, things of that nature, paying employees, it goes back to the members. Whereas a bank, you know, you have shareholders, things of that nature. Um, and generally, credit unions are relatively limited uh, to what they can offer. Um, a good example would be if you have just some small credit union, they, they'll be able to offer you a business account and maybe some small loans. But let's say you need a $1.5 million real estate loan. That's probably too big for them. Mm -hmm. So then when you go to another bank, they might go, well, we don't have a history with you. And this is like kind of a hit or miss loan. We're not sure if we trust you with a five-year loan. So I go to um, Chase. I want to take out my 50K loan, knowing that if his business is successful, I want to take out a $400,000 loan after and Chase knows my character. So, so in the short term, it sounds like generally credit unions might be the better bet, but in the long term, you're really going to... I don't even want to say that necessarily. Um, I, I like it, it all depends. I would just look at all your options. I, I don't... like. I, I guess you could say I would be inclined to convince you else to look elsewhere besides credit unions. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, I just like, I mean, you, I work for a bank, so like, Oh no, there's, there's some the bias there. Anyhow. I yeah. You. No, I, I understand. I understand. Um, but there's, there's also one other thing I kind of want to talk about with, you know, lending. Um, and I mentioned this earlier is the idea of guarantors. Um, guarantors mean, so guarantors is, so I, I talked earlier about how, you know, an LLC and S corp, you know, it, it shifts the liability away from the person. Uh, well, a lot of banks don't really like that. Um, and, and what I mean by that is let's say you're an LLC. So like, let's take, summarize it. Like, let's say you, you, know, you guys are a relatively small business and you're looking for a decent size loan. I'm just going to make it up. Let's say $20,000. And you know, a bank's going to look at it. Okay, let's say you guys are making money. It looks good. But then on paper, they're going to go, well, what if they default? What am I going to get? Their company's name, their LLC, like there's nothing really there. Um, and yeah, I guess it'll have cash on their balance sheet. But if they spend it on expenses, payroll, that, that money's gone. So the idea of a guarantor is I'm going to take you and, and Nick as guarantors, now this deal is palatable. Because in the case that, you know, the business defaults, you two don't need to, or you two need to pay the bank back. And that will make a bank more comfortable with doing a deal, especially if there isn't, like it's it's on the edge. Like there's certain cases where a bank might not want a guarantor. Let's say they're doing a, a revolving line of credit and it's secured by accounts receivable. And it's like, let's say 70% of accounts receivable is the amount the bank will finance. Well, if the, the, the line of credit like does, stops getting paid, well, the bank is going to go and start collecting your accounts receivable. Every dollar that the business is supposed to get, now the bank gets and the line of credit will get paid off. So that's their collateral. Um, but the guarantors, they keep you guys honest. So one, you'll be inclined to give you know 
accurate statements. You're not going to over leverage your company because at the end of the day, if your business doesn't pay, the bank comes after you. And, and that sounds scary, but it's better than putting your own mon- money up. So like a lot of people are like, well, why, why would I give a personal guarantor if I have the money in my checking account? And the answer is you have better uses for the money in your checking account most of the time. Why would you tie up your capital into your company when a bank can provide that knowing that you have that, that net worth or you have a house that they could put a lien on in the case that you default? So, Luke, here's a question. Yeah. Um, I originally actually want to talk about VCs and angel investors versus uh, traditional bank loans and why um, sometimes people in startups are driven towards that route and why it might be more advantageous or less advantageous for some reasons. But what I was thinking about is like as someone in their 20s who has started a business who has, let's say I have enough cap- enough liquid capital to, I don't know, operate this business for a year and a half for, could I, I quit my job and I could do this for a year and a half straight, no worries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but being a 26-year-old, I lease my car, I rent my apartment, and my 401k is about, uh, probably just above average of what a normal person my age would be. Real quick, I just want to point this out. Any retirement company or account is protected against banks. So even if okay. you have a personal guarantee, a bank in most cases cannot go after your, your retirement assets. Those are protected. Um, so you don't have to worry about those. I actually found it to be relatively interesting. This is an aside. And I'll go back to my main thing. I found this to be interesting because you can use like a Roth IRA as leverage to get like a home loan. So I thought they could... That's interesting to learn. I think you withdraw from your Roth in order to do that, but that's not really my specialty. Right. That's more of a consumer thing. So I, I don't really know good advice on that. No worries. That's not the question. I had. <laughs> so I guess I def- nah, hypothetically, I default on my loan. Oh no. Mm-hmm. I owe I owe Luke's bank $400,000. I got like 25K in assets. I give them my 25K. I owe them $375,000 more. My credit score is good. What happens? So a couple of things. One, I mean, the bank could sue you, forcing you to pay. That could end up turning into a a garnishment of your paycheck. But in most cases, the bank's going to talk with you and be like, your company isn't paying. We need you to pay. And they'll try to work out some sort of plan that, that is a middle ground. Sometimes that might be... I mean, in the case where you have... like, A, a bank looks at your guarantee as... Like not just, oh, they're guaranteeing it. That means we'll give them X amount of dollars. They're going to leverage your guarantee and the value it provides. So if you don't own a home, you don't have a car, you don't have anything but 20 grand, that guarantee is only worth 20 grand to them. So they wouldn't give you a $400,000 loan. Um, now you can turn upside point. down yeah. and, and be in a position like that, in well, which case the bank... Just make sure, it... Like, yeah. So you have a 50K outstanding loan and you only have 25K. The bank might say, hey, you need to pay us that 25K and then the remaining 25K, you need to pay over three years. That might be something they'll do. Or they might, like there's there's different situations. The bank might write off part of that debt, but chances are you're never going to get a loan from them again. And it'll probably destroy your credit because they'll put a, they'll put a collections on your credit mm-hmm. or your credit report saying that you owe them money. So it, it's, it guarantees they vary in strength. Like you can get someone who has a billion dollars in cash, but that billion dollars might be in trust. So, and they're not willing to sign the trust over as a guarantor. So that money's worthless to you. If the guy defaults, he's never going to pay you that money. It's in a trust. It's protected. So I have the opposite question now before we talk about VCs. 
Okay. Pretend I am a multi, multi millionaire, billionaire, Mm -hmm. who cares, right? And I've determined that, you know, using my actual money is just not worth it. I'm just going to only take out loans. At what point does that become more, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I mean, generally someone should disclose on their personal financial statement that they provide a bank, like what are their assets? What are their liabilities? And then what are their contingent liabilities? So contingent liabilities, meaning if a business defaults, you have to pay. It's not a direct liability, but something that you could become liable for. Um, like you should be disclosing those things uh, and a bank will make a decision. And sometimes you'll have, you know, besides just a guarantee, a bank might take a lien on your assets. So if you have an investment account and it has $100,000 on it, a bank might take a, a lien on that investment account so you can't spend all that money. Or, And if it goes down in value, you have to use those investments to pay off part of the loan. Um, but a bank will look at every kind of part of that personal financial statement. So if you got a home, if you have a mortgage, is the value that they say their home is worth you know, kind of accurate? Or does like Zillow or Redfin or the county website say it's worth a quarter of the value they state because all the time people overstate their assets. They, they're like, I think I could get $2 million from my house and really, you know, the market would give you a million five and you have like a million two mortgage on it. There's, there's really no equity in that house, you know, versus a 2 million and then $1.2 million mortgage. Got it. Okay. So I think I have our final question before we wrap it up. Sound good? Sure. Okay. Um, so VCs versus banks. Okay. So pretend I doing well, I got a product. It's a good product. I think, uh, I think this is going to sell really well in the market. I have a few reference customers, but nobody's actually spending money on me. And I have two choices in front of me. I can either go to Luke's bank and take out a loan for a reasonable amount based on, I don't know, the assets that I have called the 25, 20 K, whatever. Or I can go to big boy VC daddy who's all like, I'll give you so much money, but I will also take 30%, 40% of your company. Um, wh- where do you see, do you think the, the VC is probably going to offer mentoring and uh, things like that in that capacity, but the bank is probably going to keep you more online. This is more an opinion question compared to the factual questions we've been asking this whole time. But where do you see in a business's, I guess, lifespan on when to get into venture capital, when to divide up who owns a business, and yeah, so the best. I think that's a simple question and it comes down to, do you want to give up control of your business? And what I mean by that is, I'll use you guys, you each own 50% of your business and you know, some venture capital firm is going to give you a bunch of money and they'll, they'll take 40% of your company. So based on that, you two only own 30%. Well, at any point in time, if that venture capital doesn't like one of you, They'll work with the other one of you and get you out because they own 40%. And then with the other person, that's 70%. That's 50, more than 51% of the shares. So there's, there's ways that they can take control of the company. Like you're, even though you're not giving them 51%, they could find 51% and push their own agenda because maybe they'll, they'll tell you like, Hey, we're out or we're, there's certain covenants based on their investment that you need to hit. And if you don't hit them, there, there's more that they can take over um, or more you need to pay them back. So like, definitely, I understand the place for venture capital. But as someone, if I were to start my own business, I wouldn't want to give up equity in my business to get money so unless you- I trusted 
who I was partnering with because it's just like you two together. You guys trust each other. You guys are business partners. That is the same bond that you're taking with a company that's taking equity, even so though so they you would need to trust that business a lot, that venture capital firm a lot, or you would need to be in kind of like a rough situation and kind of doing this last resort type of thing. Yeah, I wouldn't really say a last resort type of thing, but like, let's take the Shark Tank for example, because they they're kind of like a venture capitalist. They'll they'll offer money for a portion of the company, and generally that's people who are willing to give up part of their company, and they're that's because they're trying to form a business partnership. Because, um, oh gosh, what is the term I'm looking for? Well, like a mutual beneficial relationship, a fiduciary relationship. So when you enter with a uh, venture capitalists, you guys both have the same goal, and that's grow the business, make the money. So when someone goes on Shark Tank and they want, you know, Mark Cuban because he has a really good uh, distribution history, um, or with like sports apparel or something like that, um, you're doing it because him as a business partner, his as a person, and the connections he can provide your business is definitely well worth that that cost uh, because it, that he's he wants you to succeed. But then you'll get venture capitalists that are, and, and this isn't all venture capitalists, that are going to buy a, a portion of your company and they're going to try to, you know, they think, you know, your product is this, but they think you should be focusing in market B with what you have and you want to go A. Like you want to go online sales, but they're like, no, you should be inside every Walmart, every Target, every whatever type of store. Like, and so they'll come in and they'll they'll push push their agenda, which maybe that's what you want them to do but it, it like it, it just comes up with how much control are you willing to give up and would you rather you know pay a little bit in interest to kind of get to where you need because a venture capitalist isn't free they're going to want other things generally besides just their initial investment whether that's royalties management fees um, different things of that nature and the, they they get those because they're offering you different services. So like I, I there's definitely a marketplace for them and, and I understand it, but ultimately a lot of those venture capitalists, they want to invest in your company, grow it and then sell it so they can get a huge payday. So would you say the most optimal way to do this, and this is just me spitballing, but the most optimal way to do this might be take out a series, like self fund as long as you can to grow the business to the point where it's, let's say optimal for you to take it to a bank, show them the business plan, show you're already profitable so they can offer you a higher loan at a better rate. Then when that works out fairly well and you want to go into serious growth mode, engage a VC so they own less than like say 20% of the company. Well, you can, you can theoretically like go for an initial round of funding with that bank. And then like, as you get more results and as you demonstrate to them, if you are building a relationship with that bank, you can just ask them for more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Let's say let's say today you guys like need money. My my question to you is if I was your lender would be why do you need this money? What are you going to do with it? And, and things of that nature. If you're like, well, we we need funds to buy new computers, new microphone setups, you know, uh, to get some AdSense out. Well, a bank might go, okay, what's the cost of that? Oh, it's ten thousand dollars. Okay, we can give you a you know a fifteen thousand dollar term loan. And you got to pay that back over five years at an interest rate that I don't want to quote. Um, and then you could do that, or they could be like, "Oh, you need, you know, you want a revolving line of credit, so we'll give you ten thousand now because that matches what your business would. Because a ten thousand dollar line of credit, your annual payment on that is somewhere between like 
three to five hundred dollars. Am I doing that right? If we were to talk like five percent, yeah, five hundred dollars a year, which is not much, um, as like your debt service. Probably your business could handle that, and you know that might give you guys that initial capital you need, and that means you're not putting up ten thousand of your own dollars at first, and then maybe two three years from now, you know you paid that back and you still have that ability so you could draw and pay it back however often you want. And then you go, you know, this isn't enough. We're going to be hiring two to three more staff members, you know, before those staff members, their, you know, value to the company with the additional funds that they'll generate, it might be a couple of months. So I need a larger line of credit to kind of fund their payroll. Um, so you'll they'll borrow on the line of credit for a couple of months. So then their sales will keep up and then you pay the line back down which you should never use line of credit to fund losses. So if you're losing money, a bank will probably just tell you, no, we're not going to give you line of credit because you're just going to draw it up in default. Okay. Um, Luke, this has been awesome. Yes. I have one final, it's, so this is a fun question, I think. It's, right. fun, it's, it's fun-ish. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say it's super fun. Um, I've been thinking a lot about negative interest rates recently in Europe. Okay. I want to understand, I want rather your opinion. What happens to all of the stuff you just told me? as soon as interest, if interest rates move to negative in the US? So a couple things with that. One, negative interest rates. So there's a couple things with that. Uh, one is, I'll, I'll look at it at both deposits and loans. We'll start deposits. So if there's negative interest rates, a bank could technically put negative interest rates on their savings account, which means you would be losing money, leaving it in them. That, that definitely could happen. Um, and that idea of that was encourage you to not save money, would encourage you to spend your money. Um, that whole idea of negative interest rates means people aren't going to be saving, they're spending. Spending, you know, it spurs the economy. Um, that's why rates are low, economy goes up. Rates are high, you know, economy is supposed to go down. Kind, That's like the theoretical aspect. So that's one way to look at it. The other thing is loans. So Loans are priced either fixed or floating. And so a fixed rate is, you know, when you sign the documents, this is the amount of interest you're going to pay for the term of the loan. And, and that's that's what it is. Um, the other type is, is floating interest rates. And generally in the United States, and it's from my experience, I could be wrong, loans are priced on two different floating rates. One of them would be prime and the other one is LIBOR, generally one month LIBOR. Uh, so prime that's based on your Fed funds rates. It's 300 basis points or 3% higher than the Fed funds rate target, which is currently 0 to 25 basis points. So gets you a prime rate of 3.25. So if, if interest rates went to the Fed changed the funds rate to, you know, zero, 75 to negative 75 to negative 100 basis points, then your prime is going to be, oh gosh, now I'm reverse mathing, 2%. And if it went to, if they changed the Fed funds yeah, that, rate, that to, was really impressive. If they changed it to negative four seventy five to negative five hundred, then your prime rate's going to be, you know, negative two percent. And it's possible that you know your bank will pay you two percent, even though you have a loan with them. They'll be paying you, even though you're borrowing the money. And banks don't like that. So one of the things they'll do is they'll give you a floating rate, but they're going to put a floor on it. So they're going to say. You know, your 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 loan is based on prime, but the lowest it can go is zero percent. So generally, that would mean if prime went to negative five hundred, your rate would be zero percent, or it could be you know a zero a one percent floor, something of that nature. So 
a lot of banks nowadays are, are looking to add floors in their rates in the case of negative interest rates. But I, I would say that it's very, very unlikely that you know the United States would shift to a negative interest rate environment. It just doesn't seem likely. I could be wrong. Um, based on you know futures, most people think the Fed funds rate for the next six, 12 months will remain zero to 25 basis points. There's no indication it'll go less. There's no indication that it's going to increase. Um, so it, it definitely is something that banks pay attention to. And you know, when you're signing loan documents, something even as a consumer, you should look at, are you paying on a floating rate? Are you paying on a fixed rate? And you know, this is actually kind of one of the topics um, I want to talk about. It's, it's fixed versus floating. Why would someone you know, opt for a fixed rate or opt for a floating rate? Because generally, the consumers, they like fixed rates. The banks, they like floating rates. Um, and that might seem a little you know, confusing. Why wouldn't the bank just want a fixed rate? Um, generally, fixed rates are priced higher than a floating rate. Um, and that comes down to you know, interest rate risk. If rates go up and you're signed on to that fixed rate, the bank is missing out on potential profit. And two, when interest rates go up, a bank has to pay more to like in the form of cost of deposit. So rates go up, they're going to have to put higher rates on their savings accounts, higher rates on their deposits. If they receive their deposits from some sort of other vehicle, those are going to be more expensive. So if all of a sudden your deposit costs go way up, but you're paying a fixed rate, you, the bank might be underwater because those could exceed that fixed rate. So bank likes to be tied to floating rates because that's going to be a good indication. It's not an exact correlation, but it's a good indication of what their deposit costs will be. So that's why a, a, someone likes the banks like the floating rate. And then from a fixed rate asset point for a consumer, they like those because you know exactly what your rate's going to change. And also the always the fear is, well, rates are really low right now. They're probably going to go up. So why don't I lock in at a you know a really low rate right now? That way I don't have to worry about rates going up. And then some people, if let's say rates are high, the fixed rate is still usually a good idea because when rates lower, you can just refinance your loan because the market rates are going to be lower. You'll probably be able to get someone to finance it, assuming your conditions in credit hasn't deteriorated since, or your job, or the market, something of that nature. So. And that's why the consumer likes the fixed. Now, generally, most loans for business and consumer don't have prepayment penalties. However, that can be different depending on if you use interest rate swaps, which we don't need to get into. Um, but I thought I'd just dive into that a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's cool to hear about how, depending on... It sounds like it's also somewhat influenced on the timing of the market on whether you'd want a fixed and floating as well as what you personally are comfortable with when you're Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think the market's going to go down, a floating rate makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, a good thing to note is like, to kind of put it in perspective, if I'm going to quote you a, a 4.5% fixed rate, I'm probably going to quote you a LIBOR rate of one month LIBOR plus 300 basis points, which at, on current rates would be 325, or I might do 325 basis points. So somewhere between three and a half ish percent versus a fixed of about four and a half. So like right out of the bait, you know, a, a variable rate is is lower, um, which is and that's fine because the bank's not taking that 
interest rate risk. And if rates go up 2%, well, the bank's going to be really happy because now they're getting 5.5%. But if you as a consumer are like, nah, rates aren't going to go up in two years. I'm good with 3.5% for right now. That That's totally a decision people like to make. All right. Awesome. I think that covers all the questions that we had. Um, so thanks a ton for coming on. I learned a ton and I think Josh learned a ton as well. I love this. This was like, a, Luke, do you ever listen to the Planet Money podcast? Do you know what that is? Uh, no, actually, I, I don't. I'm going to recommend, okay, I'm going to send it to you. It's NPR's like economics podcast to do weekly. And I feel like you just reminded me of it where like, I just like learned so much about economics. I'm going to okay. send that to you though. That's, okay. Did I ramble too much? Because I feel like I talked a oh, bunch and you guys didn't talk at all. Well, we're talking about a topic that neither Josh or myself have that much of a background on. So honestly, I'm super glad that you had like that much to say about it because it helped us get a much clearer picture on what. I'd rather just listen to someone who's an expert than. I don't like. I do not like calling me an expert. I am okay, not an expert. I would like to listen to someone who's <laughs> highly informed in the industry. Are you more comfortable with that? Fair, fair, fair. Okay, expert is too much. No, <laughs> it's 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 crazy. Like, and and I'd be happy. Like, when it comes to you guys making business choices, feel free to reach out. I'd be happy to help. I super recommend you guys open a Wintrust checking account for your business. There's no fees as long as you don't make more than 75 transactions in a month. And um, it's you don't. And if you make more than 75 transactions, you need to have an average monthly ba- balance of $1,500, which generally if you're making 75 or more transactions, you probably have more than $1,500 in the account. Gotcha. So versus Chase pays twelve dollars a month fee. Listen, you love Chase more than anyone I knew. Do you want to? Do you want to give people? We're still recording. Do you, do you want to give people your like your LinkedIn or some way to reach out to you, or, or would you rather not be contacted? Like, do you want to? I don't put, know. Put a plug on here for any listeners to reach out to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm Luke Erickson on LinkedIn. Uh, I think on Twitter, I'm Luke dot Erickson. I'm not actually sure. I don't use Twitter that much. I just generally use it to Google look at memes. Google Luke Erickson. He might come up. Yeah. I probably will come up. That's Erickson, S-E-N. <laughs> it's kind of a weird spelling. Last name and the actual like podcast. It's Norwegian. You know, I think it's pretty cool. I actually know you're Norwegian. Yeah. You know, Leif Erickson Day. You know, it's funny. My not related. But my uncle's name is Leif. Which is really close to Leaf, so yeah. he got the Leaf Erickson thing growing up all the time. Apparently, That's funny. <laughs> we need to bring that holiday. That needs to happen. All right. Well, it was a pleasure. And yeah, that was that was shorter than I thought you guys were gonna do. I mean, that was a solid hour fifteen.